Well, hello, everyone. This is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast, episode 134. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy this one. Actually, the next two. The next two podcast episodes will come from a conversation I had with Mark Gelfin and Howard Levin, the principals of Caridia, the original founders of Ardian. I've actually never had the chance to interview them before, and I was really excited about this conversation. They did not disappoint. We had a far-ranging conversation for, for about an hour or so, a little more. Talked about their origins, the state of med tech innovation, the trouble with VCs, and of course, Ardian. So this is a lot of territory to cover, so I wanted to split it up into two podcasts. This week's episode will focus on how they came to form Caridia and how they're approaching company creation and funding a bit differently. Next week, we'll talk Ardian and some interesting what-ifs about that. And also, we'll talk about how they are working to bring surgeons along with innovative ideas. Before I let you go into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. And I wanted to tell you that Healthogy, the producer of this podcast and the MedTech Conference, is also holding the Respiratory Innovation Summit on May 17th in Dallas. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with Dennis War. I'm pleased to tell you that in addition to Dennis War, Mark Gelfin will also be there to share his views on innovation. As you hear a bit about that in this podcast, he has high hopes for the interventional pulmonology space. So I hope you'll join us there in Dallas. You can go to medtechconference.com to register for the MedTech Conference or go to attendris.com to sign up for the Respiratory Innovation Summit. In both cases, you're welcome to use your MedTech Talk code. You'll save hundreds of dollars if you do that. So please don't forget to do that. And one final, final thing, our early bird discount rate expires tomorrow. So you need to register by April 30th. You want to save an additional $200. That's $200 on top of the $200 you'll save using the MedTech Talk code. Now let us begin this conversation with a question to Mark Gelfand. To let people sort of know what you sound like in addition to who you are, I'd like to just kind of get into the, the origin of how you, you both met and how you came to form Caridia. Mark, could you lead us off with just a, a short little bit of background on you and lead us up to the I'm point sure. where you started working with Howard? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I'm an engineer by training and uh, started my career education in um, what used to be called Soviet Union in St. Petersburg uh, uh, as a chemical engineer with a strong interest in um, digital systems and software development and surprisingly found myself at Johns Hopkins University um, uh, in the mid-80s uh, where I was hired to help with the um, several computer control devices in cardiology that were being um, originated from Johns Hopkins as a research project on the NIH grant. And Howard was a fellow there, and uh, we liked working together at the time, and always wanted to do something together, never had a chance, I think, until uh, much later, um, when I span out of Johns Hopkins with the first technology transfer project, um, that the university, the medical school did at the time was in the cardiopulmonary resuscitation field. It's one of my early inventions. So the year was 1993 when this happened. Mark served as founder and CTO of Cardiologic Systems. Mark says the company didn't do well financially, but its Vest CPR device was an early predecessor to the Autopulse that's sold by Zoll Medical today. So that's something. But the disappointing outcome forced Mark to realize that he needed some real-world medtech experience. So he went big. He joined Malincrot Puritan Bennett as a senior systems engineer. 
According to LinkedIn, he was there for about one year in one month, and he was already ready to make a change. Then Howard called me and said, I have some funding for a new project in cardiovascular space. Would you come and do it with me in New York? And I was just getting very tired of, uh, <laughs> of the big corporation that at that time was being acquired by Tyco. So you can imagine what, how much fun that was. Uh, so was a good time. Was, yeah, exactly. A good time to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly. Exactly, exactly what I did. Uh, jumped <laughs> that ship. And uh, Howard and I started our first uh, company together. Uh, it was called CHF Solutions. And later on, uh, when that company got acquired by Gambro, um, we said, why wouldn't we turn this into a technology incubator? We have more than one idea. And some people just have one idea. They work on it all their life. And it's good thing. Um, and both of us by our temperament, just like doing multiple things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we started growing a technology incubator, um, you know, get all funding it primarily with venture capital and one company at a time. And later on, we had uh, more partnerships and started uh, bringing some NH money. And we've been working like this for 20 plus years and uh, we're still in business. Enter Howard Levin. Howard's a heart failure transplant cardiologist. He says he and Mark shared a desk, more of a lab bench really at Johns Hopkins and worked well together. But in 92, just before Mark left to start his own venture, Howard would shift from Hopkins to Columbia Presbyterian, where he was a heart failure transplant cardiologist and medical director of the mechanical cardiac program. Prior to that move, Howard had his own early failure starting a company. He founded Cardio Technologies, which was developing a ventricular assist device. There, Howard says he made, quote, all the mistakes you normally make leaving academics and going into industry. Let's listen. What was that? What was your Just, pri- primary mistake that you recall? Do you, do you remember uh, one thing? I was too academic. You know, you, you, you try and, you know, you, <laughs> you don't worry about deliverables and timeline. You worry about, um, you know, understanding things to the perfect extent and uh, spending all your time and money rather than actually achieving uh, goals. You know, it, 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 it becomes good for mankind rather than a, a business. Gotcha. Interesting. And, and but just could... so you know, I'm, I'm actually the optimist of the two. Mark is uh, alternatively <laughs> called the pessimist or realist, depending on whether he's right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if you ask me the same question about that particular project, I would say grossly underestimating the amount of money it actually takes to bring a TMA device to market. Or to acquisition, or to any other. Oh, there's, there's that, there's that yeah, too. Right. That element Minor of actually, you, you, you need oxygen to survive. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oxygen, that billion can, dollars. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. oh, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's a great, uh, obviously a great combination. I'm sure. When you, how often do you f- agree uh, on something? When you're, when you got bring your optimist point of view and your pessimist point of view, uh, do you do you find a middle ground most of the time, or? Do you oh, I, I would say uni- universally we find a middle ground unless, you know, one of us happens to be right for that particular time. And then, you know, the reason we've there's a couple of reasons that we've worked so long successfully together. Uh, and and if, if there's, you know, one thing you want to take away from this um, podcast, I think it's the fact that the reason we've is that. um we may yell at each other. We may scream at each other. We may tell each other we're stupid, but you know, you, you bend to reality and uh, you have each other's back. 
Uh, that's what's the important things. And then the, the last thing is that you have to, your model can't stay the same for 20 years. I mean, we've iterated our model several times, or, you know, our business model several times over that time to, you know, we were through the downturn of 2008 and through, you know, the change in, you know, early stage money being scarce and stuff. So that, as Mark has said, you know, we, We've changed our model to get more early stage government money or gone to China or whatever. There's there's a lot of things, but I think success requires the ability to bend. Um, if that would be my takeaway. Yeah, I'm sure to answer your question, it's a, uh, even me chiming in here. It's a, we're largely complementary in our skill sets and we always wanted to have it this way rather than crossover. So um, in, in the things that are, um, you know, related to clinical research and such, basically I generally follow Howard's lead. And when it comes to technology, intellectual property, things like this, he follows mm -hmm. mine. Um, so if we ever fight over something, it probably would be the business <laughs> business side of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Mark, you know, it's, but, it, there's no utility to winning an argument if it doesn't lead to something, you know, making more money or deliverable or, you know, something it, 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 just to win an argument, to win an argument is stupid. So that is how Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin started working together and kept working together. The pair would form around CHF Solutions, a startup that developed a device to remove fluid from the heart. Gambro would go on to acquire it in 2010. And we'll talk more about CHF Solutions later on. But now the big question I had for them is just what is Caridia? We'll find out after this message. All right, time here again. As I mentioned, up at the top, our early bird discount rate is expiring tomorrow. If you want to save an additional $200 when registering for the MedTech Conference, you need to do it by April 30th. Go to medtechconference.com. Can register for $12.95. That is $200 less than the full price. Add on your MedTech talk code. That's another $200. So you're saving $400 in attending a really, really important event. So go to medtechconference.com, register by April 30th, and use that MedTech talk code. So a decade and a half after forming, Caridia is now busy. It's operating startups in California, New York, Baltimore. But what is it exactly? Let's talk with Howard and Mark and really try to figure that out. Well, how do you define Caridia? Uh, I've seen you describe it. You, you, like most other people, don't want the, the incubator title, and I don't think it, it fits here. I've seen you describe it as a, as a separator. Uh, but how do you define what you do, what, what Caridia is? And That's a really good question. I, honestly, honestly, we keep um, trying to figure that out ourselves. I, mean, <laughs> I can tell you what we're good at right? It's not like we haven't taken things from, you know, start all the way through to 510k or even helped through PMA or, you know, done the, done the process. And, but what we're best at is, you know, finding novel solutions, you know, early stage back in the napkin and then proving that they're right physiologically, clinically. And I think where we've come down to is our skill set is best to turn it over to people that are better execution people than us um, at that point, because 
um, you know, we have, we, we can do a lot of things that many people can't do early on, but we're not as good as many people for execution and certainly not commercialization. Mm-hmm. Or, what do you think? Yeah, no, I usually describe it as a, you know, a first gear in a car transmission. And for those of us who drive stick shift, uh, you can't really <laughs> drive very far on it, but without it, you will not start the car. Um, and for uh, the overwhelming amount of uh, money that is changing, you know, late stage deals and um, um, wants to join late stage development, there are very few uh, people truly interested in early stage today in Meta. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we feel that void uh, taking basically um, physiologic concepts and academic publications, integrating them with clinical needs and finding where they fit and then often find a marriage to technology that already exists. And so we like that, uh, that kind of space where uh, we're pursuing new therapies um, and relying on existing um, instruments and skills of physicians that already build up. Okay. I would just talked about respiratory, for example. I'm very excited now working in the interventional pulmonology field, which, you know, a lot of imaging and diagnostic equipment and the heavy capital equipment, robots, you name it. But uh, the therapies have not really started yet. So we're looking at this, where can we put those therapies into first gear so they will catch up with that. You know, but this is actually Mark's bringing up a really excellent point, which is it goes sort of along to what I've said about, you know, our model continues to iterate to sort of fit the needs of the, you know, where the world is at the moment. If you look at what he's doing in the pulmonary space with his two companies, he's a lung can endobronchial lung cancer bracing company, and he is a um, essentially second-generation um, endobronchial valve company. And the, the ablation company is more, is some mix of, um, you, know, uh, you know, without getting into details, some mix of, you know, early-stage proprietary back-of-the-napping stuff mixed with, mm-hmm. though now, um, you know, known techniques of of ablation and and he's been found a way to make them just better more advantageous within the skill set of the operator which is the important thing separately though you know the the endobronchial valve company that he has um is you know more uh, a play on you know, a, a, a better valve done a better way in a more cost-effective thing that fits the needs of the of the thing. And you have to understand the physiology better in order to be able to make it simpler and stuff. But it's really a, a Gen 2 valve for, a, you know, a place that already is clinically known to work, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, that that's a lot different than, you know, RDN, which was, you know, purely back in the napkin, you know, theoretical stuff to start to to this. And and also, if you look at it, he raised the money in China for this. So again, it's this, you got to keep changing to, to keep going. Got to innovate on innovation for sure. That's a good way of saying it, innovating innovation. <laughs> Maybe that's what we, what we do these days. 
That's what so many people are doing these days. We're seeing the rise of biodesign groups, starting in Stanford, of course, but now they're nationwide. They're producing med techs, they're creating med techs in Texas, in Minneapolis. We've also got folks like Andrew Cleland, who's the former CEO of Ardian, leading up the Fogarty Institute for Innovation. And they come at the problem differently. We'll get over that in the podcast. The biodesign groups really analyze the process of healthcare and try to figure out solutions to problems. Quite different than how Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin did things, where they would identify biological processes that they sort of wanted to start and try to figure out a process or a way to get that process started. So I ask, how do Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin see this rise of more institutionalized innovation? Let's find out. They all work. The ones at like Stanford Biodesign, we are working very closely with the CBIT program at Johns Hopkins. Uh, both of us teach there and actually sponsor uh, groups every year. Uh, so we, we are fairly well integrated into this um, fabric um, of um, yeah, sort of institutional innovation, for the lack of a better word. And I think it works mm-hmm. extremely well. Um, it is also uh, still to separate uh, the outcomes. It works extremely well in training people who later fill those positions of leadership and become entrepreneurs in the industry. Uh, without them, we would there would be this giant vacuum of um, people with right background who understand uh, how to find unmet needs and know how to analyze them, um, know how to put a startup together. So it's a training ground. Um, are they equally efficient at actually uh, generating new ideas? I don't know. I will let Howard talk about it. Probably yes. What what we do is somewhat different. Um, and as Howard mentioned, because we keep reinventing it, the model, and partially we keep reinventing ourselves just because we like doing it, <laughs> and partially because, <laughs> as Howard mentioned, it is a uh, it, it ensures survival in this changing world. And the medtech world is very different today from what it was to yesterday. And, we remember since you've been in, in this industry for a while, um, there were times when, you know, those large PMA projects, um, there, there was a tremendous need to treat um, diseases that were not treated well at the time. Like, again, we're talking about Arden was a good example. We, we did not abandon that model at all. We just realized that you cannot fill the entire incubator with projects like this. You need to diversify. Yes, you can't have uh, five Arden's incubating in the same year um, as we thought. So now we probably, if we do one of those every three years, it's a lot. Uh, we just got one founded at Howard's idea in the treatment of HFPAF. Again, it's a desperate uh, group of heart failure patients with very little um, therapy available to them. Um, but again, going back to my uh, first point, that we realized that in a as it stands today, there is a lot of needs to create value-based healthcare. Just take the procedures that already work, but mm-hmm. they're just too expensive, uh, too resource-consuming, uh, and bring them to the level. Of, there are certain things that we take for granted. And one project we're incubating now with Johns Hopkins is we're looking at ICDs, for example, you know implantable device that costs a fortune and gives people shocks when they go into uh, tachyarrhythmia. And when it was invented, you would say, wow, that was a brilliant idea. We literally save lives, yes. Uh, but think that technology has not really evolved uh, in, what, 30 years, Yes. Um, and 
Um, by today's standards, in the, also the healthcare is becoming global and mentioned China, India, this big, big tech market, uh, they are not going to put ICDs in patients. So at least they're mm. pushing back on those because of pricing, because of logistics, because of follow-up, uh, because of many, many. Uh, so is that technology um, ready to be sort of revolutionized to do see an opportunity here. Um, yes, we do. <laughs> and we're working on it and looking at the alternatives to eliminate the need for ICDs because I always said the best way to treat uh, tachyarrhythmia is to prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of approach that you, you would find a little bit ambitious. But, but you know, getting back to, to your original question, and I agree with everything Mark said, by the way, but getting back to your original question of like, are those programs good or not the answer you know of course they're good and they all and they do an excellent job and whatever and we're you know but there's a couple problems that you know there's not enough early stage funding for all of those people that get turned out to be able to do some of the early stage stuff that they would like to mm -hmm. um you know some of them are just not also genetically deranged enough like us i mean you know we have some weird <laughs> gene of like, you know, startup gene, whatever. But, but, you know, all kidding aside, the issue is we actually rely on physiology once we've identified the unmet need. You know, there's no, it, everything comes back to, it's got to be a business. And mm -hmm. so our matrix is for evaluating something is very similar to any VC in a sense where, you know, you know, take take any disease, diabetes, heart failure, asthma, whatever. You know, you look across and try and understand the clinical spectrum of disease. And then you try and understand where the current therapies work and where the unmet needs. That's where then uh, we differ a little bit from people where instead of looking for a, initially a technical solution, we look initially for a physiological solution that that has a technical answer to it in a sense. So if you look at Ardian as an example, you know, the the answer is where was, you know, hypertension was treated uh, or hypertension has these problems, it was treated well here and not well here. Uh, in the group where it wasn't treated well, um, we believe that uh, renal sympathetic nerve activity played a large role and then the question was, how do you affect it? And we actually looked at a number of different ways from the initial one of actually drug blocking it by injecting mm -hmm. drug around the outside to, uh, and, and in, in the end, eventually it became a, a, an ablation, intravascular ablation procedure. You know, we looked at all of those different things. And in the end, you know, after the foundry took it and then, it was, you know, Andrew Cleland and, and Ardian itself then, you know, went through the whole thing and, and showed the clinical benefits long term. The issue, you know, it was a physiological answer that we then found a technical solution to. But, but then even after that, that just gets you in the ballpark. Then you can look at a whole number of other things on paper, you know, technical risk, clinical risk, IP risk. Uh, reimbursement risk, uh, you know, who carries the bag, who are the potential acquirers, what are the main, you know, all these different matrix that we use in order to, on paper, cut out 90% of the projects that are become a good for mankind or not really a good business versus a business to, to focus on. 
And I think that, you know, people have been trained a lot better over the past number of years in, in doing modifications. Everybody has their own modification of that, that approach. But, um, you know, in the end, Mark is right. I think you can only do so many pie in the sky. You have to balance it with um, if you want to survive as a, as a incubator, idea generator, or separator, or whatever you want to call it. You have to have now in the pipeline a number of different approaches. The other problem, though, that's come up is U.S. used to be the main market, and everybody mm -hmm. was sort of focused on the U.S. And right now, uh, Mark is focusing uh, some of the stuff on the self-pay market in China. Mm -hmm. Right now, that that's well, that is a... potentially different cogs, different different you know approach, different users, different needs for the. Uh, the the patients than in Europe or in the U.S. Everything from IP to the business side. Yes, you know, U.S. market is probably today thirty percent only of the medtech market. I don't know exact numbers. You probably have a better number. You can't really build a successful strategy based on thirty percent of the world market. Well, an article I read recently in Forbes puts the U.S. medtech market at more at forty percent of the global industry. So it's obviously huge. And Mark Gelfin's right. Outside the U.S., there is a bigger slice of pie or more slices of the pie, however you want to slice up the pie. They're outside. All those pie slices are outside the U.S. So if the market is out there, you can find the capital out there as well. And Mark Gelfin's had some success in raising money from investors outside the U.S. Let's find out how he does it. How did you go about securing uh, funding from China? And is it something that's uh, easier than people might think or, or more difficult? Oh dear, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it's uh, really, um, that, let's, uh, you, you, you have to sort of, securing funding in China is easier than securing funding in the US uh, wow. if you're starting a company in China. Mm -hmm. If you want to secure Chinese funding for the company in the US or Europe, it actually is harder because there are many bureaucratic hoops to jump through and uh, which creates a disparity in valuations. You know, internal the internal startups in China can draw on the national funds um, that um, have no international presence, um, that an overwhelming majority. There are a smaller number of Chinese investors specifically looking to invest outside of China for multiple reasons, and some of them is because they want to keep their returns outside of China. And then there are all sorts of possible combinations. Uh, regarding the more important question, how do you go to secure? The only way I think that I would recommend anybody to do it is to go for personal connections because everything in China really is based on personal connections. And you need to make those connections first um, because it's a, for a foreigner coming to China to raise money. If you just go to the conference and we do that and you know participate in those conferences and it's great. Um, you, you get million business cards from people who call themselves investors. Um, but I would not recommend that pathway to anybody. Uh, a lot of them will come with a lot of strings attached, the, um, pro financial problems, expectations that you cannot fill in. Um, if you make uh, good connections in China on a personal level with people you trust, and we just were lucky to have those, uh, one of um, our friends um, and co-workers from Artian Times, actually, from Columbia University, moved back to China, took a job there as a dean of medical school, and later became part-time VC and entrepreneur. And he gradually introduced us to people you can 
work with and trust and who understand the intricacies of medtech because majority of Chinese investors invest in real estate, coal, and medical devices. Yes. <laughs> and you can imagine the disappointments that will come from that. Yes. So uh, for the few that actually are in that field and understand what they're doing and willing to invest outside of China, um, that's, it's, a, it's, it's how you call it, it's a selection process that you will have to go through the very large pool of investors. And unless somebody is guiding you, um, I don't think you will get to the right ones. Well, that's not a wrap, but it certainly concludes part one of my interview with Mark Gelfin and Howard Levin. We'll get to a lot more next week. Well, of course, TalkRDN, which really represented one of MedTech's highest of the highs when Medtronic agreed to pay over a billion dollars for the company, and the lowest of lows when uh, a few years later Medtronic announced some devastating clinical trial results that really decimated the rental innovation space and demoralized all of MedTech, in particular the founders and those involved with Ardian. In fact, I was a little uh, little reluctant to ask the question. Do you like talking about Ardian? I mean, or do you feel it's sort sure. of uh, you? Okay, <laughs> I mean, it was enormous. Success story, and I, I kind of—I don't know. Yeah. It's just—it's just classic. And, and by the way, no, it's, 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 it, it follows a classic drama, you know, because unrealistic. It's, it's a metric opera. To, I like to think of. Yeah, exactly. So many, yeah, opera. I mean, and now, <laughs> now we have we have the redemption stage, so we've been um, glorified, yes. glorified, yeah, they're redeemed. So make sure you listen next week for more of this story, and also make sure you register for the MedTech Conference and the Respiratory Innovation Summit. MedTech Conference is happening on May 30th, May 29th, and May 30th in Minneapolis. The Respiratory Innovation Summit is taking place on May 17th in Dallas. Go to attendris.com to register for RIS and go to medtechconference.com to register for, well, you can figure it out. You can use the MedTech Talk code in either case. You'll save a boatload of dough, so please don't forget. That's it, folks. Tune in for another great Tale of MedTech Innovation next week when I continue my conversation with Mark Gelfin and Howard Levin. 